Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Safety and Sustainability Audits, Lessons Learned from Professional Auditors Around the World, sponsored by Aveta. My name is Barry Botino, and I am an Associate Editor with Safety and Health Magazine. I'll be your moderator today. Thank you for spending some time with us. From our team here at the National Safety Council, we hope you're all safe and healthy amid the COVID-19 pandemic. We'd like to say a special thank you to all the safety professionals who are working every day to keep their colleagues healthy and safe on the job during this time. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first, I'd like to go over just a few housekeeping items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or the magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we will conduct a question and answer session with our speakers. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. You can feel free to ask your question at any time at all during the presentation. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but we might not get to every question today. However, any questions we don't get to will be forwarded along to our speakers. If you happen to have any technical issues during this webcast, please refer to our list of helpful tips located on the right-hand portion of your screen. For basic troubleshooting information, click the Help button at the bottom of your screen. At the end of this webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, but I'll tell you about that a little later. This webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com events. And finally, our friends at Aveta have made the slides available for this presentation to our audience today. You can locate those slides by clicking on the Related Content widget on your screen. With that, let's introduce our speakers. Our speakers today are Lori Kanapi and Kaiza Matson. Lori has more than two decades of EHS experience and is currently a member of the Institute of Internal Auditors North America. She also serves as the regulatory chair for the Gulf Coast Safety and Training Group, along with being Vice Chair for the ASSP Energy Corridor. Lori studied EHS at the University of Connecticut, along with Business and Science at, the, at Columbia Southern University. Kaiza is recognized for her expertise in developing and implementing global sustainability strategies, along with the ability to use sustainability concepts to drive business performance. She has more than 20 years of experience fielding social and environmental questions from world-class companies of branded consumer goods. Again, we thank you all for tuning into this presentation. And Kaiza, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Thank you so much, Barry. Um, yes, so let's start. Uh, the first question uh, I have got here is, uh, why do we need a supplier code of conduct? Um, I think it's uh, simply a business matter, and uh, it's becoming more and more evident that this is also an enabler for long-term growth. Uh, like you all know, the regulation is getting uh, stricter and more demanding, and also the financing sector is asking more and more questions from the companies. 
so I think that's that's already a good reason. Um, also, before uh, I think companies were talking a lot about their values, and I think sustainability is a value that uh, many of the people in the companies can relate to. Uh, people uh, want to work for companies uh, that have decent values. And then I think um, also the consumers uh, play an important role. Uh, they are becoming more and more educated through the social media and other media uh, about the production conditions and, and uh, things happening uh, in the supply chains uh, of companies. And uh, it's not that they, uh, the consumers anymore just uh, take for granted that because you have a good brand, because you say you are doing good, that you really do good, but they uh, would also ask for more transparency and more evidence how you're working. So I think uh, supplier code of conduct is a good uh, starting point. Um, and why work so much with suppliers is that uh, actually the impact uh, that you make uh, is often bigger uh, in, at the suppliers and in the upstream value chain rather than in your own plant. This can, of course, differ, but this is uh, normally the situation. So uh, you should extend uh, your view outside your core core uh, site and, and your business, but also look uh, uh, upstream uh, what happens there and how your operations is impacting on the, uh, on the environmental and social questions. And then it's uh, very practical to collect all your um, demands uh, uh, when it comes to sustainability towards the supplier in one document. Uh, it makes it all more practical in, with the communication and, and usually companies ask suppliers to sign on this one. So with the, the signing, a uh, supplier is uh, showing that they are committed to, to these requirements. And then it's good to have a clear process uh, how this, first of all, this commitment happens, that how suppliers are signing, but also how you verify then that what they have promised uh, they can live up to. And we will come back to that uh, in a moment. Uh, and then finally here I want to say that uh, it's not only the people working maybe in sustainability department or health and safety department that uh, should uh, be concerned here, but really all the people who work in a company, especially those who are somehow connected to the supply chain, uh, they can all contribute to, to this work because uh, making this signature or making an audit is just a starting point and then the big work happens um, as the business develops and, and you continue to uh, set the requirements for the suppliers. And uh, also I think uh, doing business uh, is always a good way to help uh, other companies. So uh, you would like to have a good supply chain so that you can get good quality products and probably you have lots of uh, knowledge inside your company. So through this collaboration with suppliers in other parts maybe of the world, uh, uh, you can also share your knowledge and help them to improve. And this is an important part. 
Um, then, uh, what is the supplier code of conduct? So uh, you can find on the uh, internet uh, a lot of companies' uh, supplier code of conduct policies because these are typically public uh, documents. So it's quite easy to find uh, good examples and uh, look at them and see uh, what what could be used. Uh, they almost always they are based on these international conventions, uh, some national legislation, and and also good practices in the industry. And important also to look at what your customers are asking from you and, and uh, make those as your requirement to your supplier. And in this way, uh, the higher demands are uh, going down, down the chain. Um, and, and you make sure that you are always compliant towards your own customers. And uh, sometimes suppliers are worried to sign on these kind of documents. And then it's good to be clear what is really a master requirement, something like a, you, you always want this to happen. And maybe there are also parts in this that are more like aspirational. You are committing to something, but uh, doesn't mean that the supplier has to be 100% compliant now, but it's something like a development work. Uh, this is typical for supplier code of conduct policies. And, and you can, of course, also write it out so it's very clear this would be must-have and this is uh, a wish that you will work on this one. Um, and then, uh, like I said, in, in different industries, there are different uh, questions when it comes to environmental social compliance. And uh, in your supplier code of conduct, you can open up a little bit more on what is important for your industry. Uh, if you are in mining, there are certain questions, maybe energy or chemicals or health and safety. If you are in, in garments or textiles, it's more about the labor questions. Uh, if you are in food industry, it's about plantations and uh, farming and so on. So th there you have a lot of uh, also space to, to underline uh, what is special for your business. And. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, then maybe uh, one more point is about the language. So uh, when you write, write this, con uh, this uh, policy, some write it more like a legal contract. Others write it more almost like a guideline or more like in a, uh, more in a practical manner. So that depends a little bit on your company culture and, and how you want to communicate. Then we, we move on. So uh, usually uh, supplier code of conduct uh, have uh, certain chapters and uh, uh, th these can vary, but I have put here what is typical. So uh, they usually have one section about human rights and labor, labor rights and labor condition. Uh, and then they have one about uh, external environment and pollution prevention, and then about health and safety. And nowadays, also, you can see more and more about the business ethics, and that has uh, become more also a regulatory requirement. In the U.S., you have very strong laws on this one. So this has also been included. And then there is usually one part that is more explaining uh, about the management uh, practice and uh, about audits and, uh, and so on. 
Uh, I'm not going so into detail. This is just an example of things that you can find there. Uh, then about uh, auditing. So when you have made your supplier code of conduct, uh, then to verify that suppliers are uh, following, uh, you usually have some kind of uh, audit uh, program. And, uh, and you can, for example, uh, uh, make a checklist or or the other option is if you don't want to audit yourself but you become member of some of these uh, initiatives uh, that are there uh, for example there is this TEDx um, uh, there is another one called BSCI and probably in US you have also others but these are the ones uh, European companies uh, mostly use and these uh, standards have their own uh, very well-designed programs for uh, how the supplier should be uh, audited. And they have checklists and systems and everything and accredited auditors who are doing these audits. But, but also companies uh, parallel to this, they often have their own audit program. And that's, uh, that's mostly uh, maybe they want to audit their really close uh, business contacts, uh, their uh, biggest suppliers, their uh, contract manufacturing sites and so on. And then you can make your, your own checklist based on the requirements. And I think uh, what is important there is that you see that you have good balance between the different chapters, depending on what you want to emphasize on. And you are also clear if there are some critical findings that are kind of non-tolerance non for you, that you don't really want to see any findings here, or if there are any findings, that would be a severe uh, question. And there can be others that are more, like I said, aspirational. So um, questions that uh, the you are not asking suppliers to be compliant today, but it's nice to see if they are working on this and in improving. And then also, I think it's quite practical if you have a scoring system, so you can see a result of the, out of the audit, some numbers, and then you can put your suppliers in certain risk categories or performance categories. So uh, green, yellow, red is probably the most typical. And then you could also draw a line that I cannot accept the supplier, which is uh, scoring lower than this level. Then the we ask them to improve before we can accept them. Um, and uh, what is really the impact of all this auditing work? Um, uh, I think there is a lot of good things uh, that that you can achieve uh, with the audit. Either you do it yourself or, or you use an external partner. Uh, first of all, of course, you identify what kind of risks there are and what kind of negative impact you might have uh, caused in your operation to people and to the environment. Uh, and you can see uh, that the better the result, the less risk you have. So uh, that's pretty evident. And, and uh, when you audit, it becomes more clear to you. You have less questions and wonders, uh, how is it actually there? We don't know. Um, and uh, this risk question is important because uh, if there are bad conditions, for example, uh, bad labor conditions or uh, illegal practices or uh, things like that. It could cause, for example, a disruption in your business. Um, 
maybe the authorities would terminate the the, the site or or close it for for temporary, uh, or maybe there is a fire or some severe accident. So it's, this is also a way to to try to mitigate that kind of issues. And then. Um, when you audit supplier, you get much more understanding, like I said, about the situation, about the conditions, and why things are as they are. It opens your mind uh, and, and uh, maybe clears out questions that you had or opens new thoughts. How, how can you help and how can you uh, support the supplier to perform better? And I think uh, what I have seen in my career is that uh, in the beginning, maybe suppliers feel a little bit uh, uh, insecure that why do they come here and see and what are they looking for. And, and, uh, but as, if you work long term with a supplier and you help them also to improve, not only judge them for not doing something, uh, the, the, you can build trust and your business will become also better. And uh, it's kind of a mutual uh, advantage there. So I think it's uh, money uh, well uh, well invested. Uh, then uh, very practical things is that uh, uh, what is actually expected from uh, this kind of sustainability uh, EHS uh, professional. I think it's uh, quite a demanding work. Uh, I have seen lots of uh, good auditors around the world. And uh, a few things that's uh, really common to them all uh, is that they have a very thorough, good understanding of the local conditions for people and the industry. Uh, of course, also the local law, so that they know uh, what paragraphs to refer to. Uh, and uh, they need to have quite wide understanding because they need to be experts in environmental questions, in health and safety questions. Uh, and as I said, also in labor questions. So these are quite uh, different uh, fields, but still they need to uh, handle all of that. And uh, they need to be very good communicators because they need to also uh, build a trust with the supplier and, uh, and be able to convince them and, uh, and explain to them uh, about these, these different demands and also give them some ideas how to solve uh, certain problems or what could be the solution. So, Auditors, yes, but uh, also consultants. And sometimes you can uh, even separate that. So uh, one person can one day work as an auditor, another day that uh, person can also be a consultant and, and helping uh, companies. And uh, yeah, so I think uh, not an easy job, but a very interesting job, I would say. Uh, then uh, some examples from practice. So, for example, here is one company uh, that has worked with the audit program for uh, several years. And uh, when uh, they started with the work, you can see uh, the, the green uh, piles there. Uh, they uh, did just a few like uh, pilot audits and, and tried to learn. Uh, the orange line there, you can see the result from the audit is going up and then coming down again. The reasons are that the auditors also get more uh, understanding of the situation, so maybe they can see more what they couldn't see in the beginning. Uh, another, another thing is that companies usually add on more requirements because also the companies know more and the customers asking more. So uh, whatever you ask for, it's changing over time and, and it tends to become 
um, higher and higher uh, requirements. Uh, but when you work long time, you can also see good results. So here, for example, this company has, has been able to close a lot of non-compliances and, and even critical questions. And if you think the impact of all of that, it, it's really good, um, good things that you have achieved in, in your supply chain. Uh, then just very shortly uh, to end up, there is one example here. Uh, there was a factory uh, that, uh, that uh, I worked with, and uh, they had issues with uh, working hours. And uh, the root cause of this problem with too long working hours was that they didn't have enough uh, workers uh, available uh, for the factory. So we were actually doing also a lean, uh, lean manufacturing project at the factory. So uh, we could combine these two things, which was very interesting. So here we are looking at efficiency and social compliance questions at the same time and, uh, and found out that we can actually, uh, they are uh, supporting each other. Uh, I'm not going too much into details here, but, but here is a picture of uh, assembly line and uh, we did a deep study into all the different, uh, like the, the different work that was ha happening in that assembly line, and what the people were doing, and where were the bottlenecks, and and then uh, we found out the different ways how to improve the efficiency. And uh, as as a result, um, you can see here. So um, without changing actually the output, uh, what we could uh, reduce the workers with 25%. And here it, it was a good thing because then we could move the workers to other lines and increase the total output from the factory. So, um, and at the same time, we could also reduce the working process. We could improve the quality, uh, reduce the reworks and, and many other things. So I think uh, I try to say here that social compliance is very much going hand in hand with, with quality cost and, and on-time delivery. Um, yeah, uh, just to close, uh, close my part here is that uh, these, I talked a lot about the working conditions, but there's also a lot of other kind of technology that, that uh, we can uh, help suppliers, uh, encourage them, or in other way help them to, to invest in their factories. For example, bring new technology from our countries or uh, support them uh, with, uh, for example, turning into renewable energy like this, this factory here has done. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, that was all from me. Hi, everybody. Thank you, and thank you for joining us. This is Lori. Um, I really do appreciate you taking the time to come. We certainly understand that with our current environment, everybody is overloaded with virtual meetings and webinars and presentations and expos that are all virtual, so I really do appreciate you taking the time this morning to join us. I did want to uh, say, in reference to Kaiser's presentation, excellent and i absolutely loved the emphasis on suppliers suppliers are such a large part of our workforce and we do need to treat them and evaluate them as we would our own companies because they do represent our company and certainly you know we want our suppliers to function 
in an environmentally safe and responsible manner. And like Kaiser had said, one of the key ways to do that is through language and contracts and documents. And certainly a lot of emphasis has been given into, you know, our interface documents or bridging documents or, you know, uh, statements of work or whatever your company or your organization calls them. So that's a great place to start and verify that everybody's really clear on what their responsibility is and who's responsible for it. So I thought her presentation was excellent. So I'm going to follow up um, on a lot of what she said. Certainly, you know, here in the States, we have um, our regulatory bodies, whether you're, you know, land or offshore or uh, air or whatever. So this is kind of an overall general assessment of that. And we're going to talk about these things here on the agenda. So why is it important for environmental health and safety to audit? And that's more important than people think. So the EHS professional's role you know, in past practices, the quality department typically would go out and do the audit. And we're absolutely not saying anything negative against quality. Quality is a high, high demanding field. However, their training is different than safety training. And with safety training, certainly we get into a lot of, you know, the ergonomics and the chemicals and this, that, and every other thing as to where your quality piece, more your ISO pieces, documentation, and, and along those lines. So it's really important that we have a mix of disciplines when we're talking about our auditing and our auditing process. And when we're looking at the role and the sustainability, so like I had mentioned, you know, the EHS professional is most commonly tasked with chemical inventories, you know, the safety programs, the training, reporting formats, pollution prevention, with the knowledge that the EHS professional has about chemicals and reporting requirements, this makes them a really strong team member. For me, when I was working in manufacturing, there was a couple of incidences that I was able to really support an audit. When performing the audit, I noticed that a chemical that was in a document we were no longer using, and certainly I knew that because I was responsible for the chemical cage and doing a perimeter walk every day to make sure that the chemicals were okay and not overflowing. So I knew immediately that that chemical was something that we no longer used. Although everybody had talked about it and purchasing didn't, did it, they didn't get it into the documentation. And documentation is as critical as implementation. And that's a really big, really big uh, thing. So, you know, procurement agreed that we were going to make the updates and that they would do a document review change request before they just made a change. So everybody was aware of it. Because obviously, when you do do something like change a chemical, you have to have retraining. And that step had been missed because it hadn't been noted that the chemical was changed. So another thing that's really important with the role of the EHS professional is looking at your Emergency Planning and Community Right to Know Act. You have to be aware of your surroundings. And you have to be aware of your surroundings, not only with your work processes, but in the area as well. And during my time in manufacturing, you know, we did have highly hazardous chemicals and we kept them under the reporting threshold. And that wasn't to not have to get a reporting permit, but it was to reduce the exposure to the community. It was to reduce the exposure to the emergency responders because you have to report those chemicals to your emergency responders so they know what they're going to encounter when they come onto your site if something goes goes south. So by keeping the lower quantity, you are being, you know, socially responsible and you are being a good steward of your environment and a good neighbor. So kind of looking at those things where perhaps 
you know, you can make, make some changes. And we want to talk about why auditing is so important and who does it affect. Well, we perform audits, whether they're internal or external, so that we can get a greater insight to the gaps in our work processes, our contracts, our environmental concerns, or any other missing thing that we may not know. And who does it affect? Everybody. As you can see, all of these management systems, although everybody has their own department and they have their own goals, they all meet together because ultimately it's one company and it's one system and it's one output. So we all have to talk and we all have to work together to make sure that one system isn't affecting negatively another system. And then again, some of the systems that are used are a bunch of ISO documents and a bunch of ISO or ASME regulations that we all have to adhere to. So these, again, all have to complement each other in order to make sure that we're compliant as a whole. So audit tools are really fun and they're really interesting and they're growing. With technology, audit tools have really grown. Obviously, you know, an electronic tool, whether it's an iPad or whether it's a checklist on an iPad or a phone, is great because it gives you that easy access. Some of them, of course, are, you know, weather dependent, um, but it gives you that easy access and immediate access to do those checklists in real time and not have to put it on paper and then go back and transfer it into a database. It also gives you that availability to connect with perhaps someone at the facility while you're in the field in order to, again, make that connection immediate and make any change or any findings known immediately. You know, the checklist is still one of our most used tools, and that's great. Uh, one of the benefits of the checklist is that, again, it gives you a starting point and it gives you a checklist so that you don't forget anything. We all get sidetracked. We all have a bunch of stuff on our mind. And by having that checklist, it gives you that not foolproof, but definitely more foolproof that you haven't missed anything and that you haven't forgotten anything. And of course, obviously, the design of the checklist goes into your audit planning. What do you need to look at? What do you need to see? Another thing that's really becoming popular are drones. And drones are getting used more and more, not only for safety of the worker, but for hard to get places and definitely for high places because, again, it's that lack of fall and, and easier to um, access. We know that a little while ago, OSHA started using audits as, or drones rather as part of their audit process and their inspection process, and that's fine. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that, but it is recommended that if you do have a dr OSHA-based drone audit, that you ask for a copy of their flight plan and that you ask for a copy of what they're going to be looking at. Because just like with any OSHA audit, if they're coming to look at a specific thing, it's common to take them to that specific thing. You don't normally just say, okay, here you go, run around my shop. Um, so the same thing with the drone. Ask them what they're looking at, verify what they're looking at, ask to see it after to verify that the information is what you agreed upon. That That's not rude. That's absolutely your right. And then, of course, document review. It is really important to review documents at the time of the audit, prior to the audit, to make sure that you understand everything, especially if you're looking at a document for a process, to make sure you understand the steps, those operating steps, before you go out and do that audit. While you may understand the technical document, 
it's a typical thing. Is it paper perfect, part perfect? Do we actually perform the work the way the paper says? And that's a really big auditing task. If we don't, why not? Why are we doing extra steps? Why are we bypassing steps? So understanding the paper and then going and look at the process is really important. One tool that I like is the EPA Phase 1 uh, environment uh, audit. It, it's a really great tool. You can pull them off the website. It's pretty in-depth, like anything that the government is going to provide us. But um, I think that if you, you know, scale it down to what your needs are, you're going to find that it's very comprehensive for an environmental audit for your own company. And like we spoke about checklists, you know, they're really great and they really, you know, are a great tool because like we say, they make sure that you're doing everything systematically. It's part of your audit planning. It makes sure that there's consistency in the audit. If you use it from year to year, it gives you that opportunity to look at continual improvement to make sure that things were found in a prior audit are being, you know, taken care of this time around. And again, you know, the audit checklist, when you have your space for your auditor's notes, it can provide a reference to objective evidence. And objective evidence is really important because to be a true, really good audit, it cannot be subjective. You know, it has to meet the intent of the regulation. It has to meet the intent of the operating procedure. So we want to make sure that our proof, that our evidence is absolutely concrete. Um, it can be, you know, an area for improvement, but it has to really be there in order to be a conformance. So this is a website, and all of these will be in the reference slides toward the end. Uh, this is a um, ISO checklist, and ISO has a ton of ISO numbers, as you know. And they provide these checklists, and they're all free downloads. And again, the same thing, take advantage of them, use them, search for them by what's good for your industry. Same thing again, you can you know, mark them up and scratch off stuff that you don't need uh, based off of your own company's scope of work. But if you don't have a good check system in place or you're not quite sure what to do, this is a really good resource. I wanted to share with you you know, the root cause analysis. And while we typically think of root cause analysis as an after event process, you can still use the same thought when you're creating your audit plan and going out and doing the audit itself. And of course, one of the things that is really good for me is the five why. You know, when you're out and you're doing an audit in the field, if you just say to someone, how are you doing? Are things going okay? Are you having any difficulties? You probably are going to get a yes or no. But if you say to them, why are you doing that? Why can't you do it that way? That's going to open up that line of conversation. And it's going to educate you, but also it's going to better your audit because you're going to hear things that they're going to share with you that could be something that needs to be changed or perhaps like we spoke about earlier, if it's not paper part perfect, you know, what do we need to do to make it paper part perfect? So, you know, the five why um, it's really a great audit tool, believe it or not, even though we typically think of it as an accident investigation tool. So this website here was just recently shared with me. It's Safety Culture and it's iAuditor. And this is, again, a variety of different industries, trades, occupations that you can pull audit forms for. And again, this is a free service. And the link will be at the end. And this way here, you can go through and create and just you know, 
dice and slice so that it fits your, your organization. This particular form here is uh, Think Reliability. And this again is a free download. Um, if you are not familiar with Think Reliability and their cause mapping method, it's really a great tool. And again, it can be used as part of your audit planning. If you look at something that you want to audit and then you go through and you complete this template as if it was an accident, it will give you great things to add to your audit plan and great things to go and look at. One of the things that I love about this particular document is you can see on the bottom all the different tabs. It gives you so many options and so many solutions and so many diagrams and flowcharts and things like that in order to really make a great program. And again, this is just a tool that can be used as you're trying to develop your audit plan and, and your checklist. Um, but all of these, it's almost like a workout. You start at the end and you go backwards. I need to have a 100% product here. How do I need to get there? And then you work backwards. So it's kind of just a turn your brain around rather than say, okay, I need paper. Okay, now I need a paper cutter. You know, now I'm going to make a book. So it's just kind of a turn your brain around. And when you start at the end and go back, it's amazing how you have to slow down and think and not get caught up into those repetitive emotions um, because we're just so accustomed to going left to right. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the value of an audit, whether it's internal or external. So obviously the frequency depends upon the level of the audit. If you're doing a major like mock pre-OSHA audit, you know, that's going to take a lot more time and it's going to take a lot more prep. If you're doing what some companies refer to as a power walk or a power audit where it's once a month, then those are just kind of, again, for sustainability to go through and make sure that you haven't fallen back into old habits. So that's all going to be decided based upon size of your company, risk, scope of work, you know, all of your folks, locations, and that type of thing. And then again, the frequencies are going to have to be determined um, by your company and what your needs are. And, you know, those frequencies can change based upon a significant event or where you're not seeing that changes are being maintained and supported. So those things, again, need to be reviewed. And like anything, you know, your audit system needs to be reviewed annually or every two years or whatever your document review policy is to make sure that it's fresh and that it's meeting your company's goals and expectations. So let's look at audit steps. So audit steps are pretty, pretty simple. Um, you know, one of the biggest things is when you schedule your audit, you want to make sure that you give people enough time to plan, which is a lot of that document review. So there may be quite a, depending upon how many documents there are, it could be quite a bit of work. Um, so you want to make sure that you give them plenty of time to prepare, plan, and you want to make sure that they're going to be around. Make sure that you don't schedule something on a time when someone's on vacation or someone has a meeting or someone's going to be traveling for work. So you want to make sure that you really make sure that your audit team is available. And then, of course, planning the audit, like we've spoken about, you want to make sure that you have everything in place. Hold a kickoff meeting. Hold a kickoff meeting for the audit planning, never mind the audit execution, but the audit planning as well. Because the more people from the audit team that you engage in all of this, the better your audit is going to be. And then, of course, your audit selection, like Kaiser had spoken about, it's critical. It's really critical because you want to make sure that you have 
the right people, your subject matter experts, a variety of disciplines, because when you have an electrician walk through and do an audit versus HR go through and do an audit or even the maintenance team go through and do an audit or the plumbers going through and doing an audit, because of their experience and their trade, they're most likely going to find similar things, but they're going to find different things because they're looking at it from a different view. And that's really important. It's really important to bring in as many disciplines as you can to get the best overall audit that you can possibly have. And then, of course, obviously, you want to go out and perform it. The review of records, talking to folks on the floor, you know, collating your data, and then having your closeout meeting to discuss the findings. And then the big one is, of course, corrective actions. Making sure that those corrective actions are done, that they're complete, that they're sustained, and that they really did make the change that the company was hoping for. So scoring. Now, Kaisa had spoken a little bit about scoring, and it is common, you know, uh, common, very common to give people a numerical score and, or companies a numerical score based off of their audit. Um, and that is kind of how we gauge if they're going to be someone that we want to work with. You know, if they're a green, you know, a, a great score and they're all green and they're 90 or above, absolutely. They've got their, their stuff together and we want to work with them. If they're a little not so great, well, what was the issue and we need to kind of read behind the lines. And if they're totally under the threshold of what you have established as a scoring number, then you need to really stop and think, you know, are those people in line with your company goals and with your company requirements? And do you want to use them? Do you want to put them on a safety improvement plan? Or do you want to move on to someone else? One of the things that we're looking at when we look at scoring is the components themselves. And everybody has to determine how they want to rate and score the components. Are they compliant? Is there an opportunity for improvement? Was it a minor nonconformance, major nonconformance? And obviously, minor and major are subjective to each company, just like risk is subjective to each company. Another thing that I've seen is that they break it down into a little one more category. So the requirements are there, and they meet fully. They're great. The requirements are there, but they don't quite meet. So again, you know, you can have a conversation, you can kind of work with them to get them to where you want them to be. The requirements are there, but perhaps they're not really documented very well. Um, but they do meet the but they do meet the the intended request. Or they're there, but they don't they're really not there, and they really don't meet the requirement. So that again is one of those that you might want to work with, or there's no requirement at all. And that's usually somewhere that you want to say, okay. If they are the only shop in town and you have to use them, then you would want to have, you know, like Kaiser had said, a really great letter of understanding, a really good statement of work, a really good interface document, and work with those perhaps in a limited scope, uh, again, just to make sure that, you know, the sustainability is there and the responsibility is there. Because we have to remember that with the amount of contractors that are used, you know, it does reflect on your company. So you want to make sure that you're giving the best image of your company as well. And again, a really good score can also give a view of the maturity of the safety program, and it can also give a view of the safety culture of the company itself. If they take it seriously, they're going to expect their suppliers to take it seriously. And that just means good work. So here are some audit member teams. These are just ones that I could think of that I've usually worked with. They're, this is not all inclusive. Um, it's just to give you guys some thoughts 
of people that you should bring into the audit team so that you, again, have that round level of experience and knowledge and training. Um, and like I say, it's just good to have a great mixed media of the disciplines to get the best audit possible. And when you're looking at the team members, you have to decide, depending upon how formal or informal your audit is, uh, exactly what you want to know. If you're hiring an outside company and they're giving you audit team members, you may go to the level of asking to review their resume. You may go to the level of asking to review any training certs they've had. If it's internal, then you might want to go you know, to your subject matter experts and ask them, because of their skills and knowledge of the work, to come and be a part of the audit team. You might want to say that they have to have so many years of skills and knowledge so that they've got more potential areas of troubleshooting. Have they ever done an audit before? If they have not ever done an audit before, then you might want to complete even a basic auditor training program and let them go through kind of a, a process with that because auditing, especially when you're auditing, auditing your friends and your peers, it can get a little, it can get a little overwhelming. Um, so you might want to actually do a little bit of training. So what data do we want to collect? So data to be collected depends upon, obviously, the work, the risk, the dollar value, and all of that. But you really do want to collect things that are going to make a significant improvement to your operations and your systems. And you want to make sure that the data that you collect is something that can actually improve your workflow, your processes, and your decision making. Like anything, you know, a great robust audit system will provide visibility and transparency to the company because that information should be shared. So methods to collect review of documents, review of audits, interviews, in-person communications, observations, and review of that historical data. Have we maintained what we said we were going to maintain? That's one of the biggest things because if we put an action in place and we don't follow through with it, then we really haven't benefited us or the company at all. What to measure? Again, that's specific to your company and what your operations are. And even though you may not think of it, all of these things impact everything. They are going to impact injuries. They are going to impact production. It is going to impact your supply chain and definitely regulatory and environmental compliance. So these are some examples of types of KPIs that were captured for manufacturing. I have a manufacturing background, so I always kind of lean that way um, because obviously manufacturing is such a huge industry here within our country as well. And this is just kind of an idea, a little bit of a checklist for you guys. This I find hysterical because this is, you know, if we go back to here, and if we go back to this one here, which is a very nice and calm kind of scorecard that you can really see and, and just kind of get an overall view of. And then when we go here, you can see when you collect too much data, it's a little overwhelming. And while for perhaps your CFO and those folks, this may be great, but for the department folks, you might want to break it out so it's a little more viewable and not quite so overwhelming. And what can we do with all of that data? Same as before, performance, use of lagging and leading indicators, benchmarking, performance measurements, setting goals, objectives, 
setting management assessment tools. And then, of course, obviously, we can use that data to see what kind of technology we can use to capture and analyze the data and then assess what we need. So here are some proven practices for KPIs. Obviously, we have to make sure that they're clearly, accurately understood. We have to make sure that those KPIs are in alignment with the company's goals and objectives. We want to make sure that they're quantifiable, achievable, and measurable. And we want to make sure that they're evaluated and modified as necessary. Again, part of that continual improvement. So just quick leading and lagging indicators. Obviously, lagging show how well your company is functioning because it's historical data. Leading indicators is proactive to show what we can do to make it better, and those are the tricky ones. And then typically, you know, the type of indicators that we use are OSHA stuff, near-miss reports, behavior-based safety cards, and, and that type of thing. So OSHA lists every year their top 10. And there's not been a heck of a lot of change over the past few years. Uh, the difference, of course, is from 2017 to 18 and 19, you know, the bottom one being um, electrical versus eye and face protection. But it's usually, usually the classic 10 that are in there, and they're significant. There's nothing to, you know, say that this is not important information. But this is, for an auditing purpose, this information is a little stagnant because it's the same old thing. What further can we go? What further can we look at? So what I like to do is this tool here. And I apologize that we can't hyperlink to it, but you know, the OSHA 10 is great, but this here is, in my opinion, better. The OSHA 10 is an accumulation or, an, or a combination of every industry. They take every industry and they say, okay, this is how many citations we wrote for this, this is how many citations we wrote for that. When you go to this website, and if you put in your um, NAICS code, CIS code, um, it will take it to your industry itself. So when you go to, again, the manufacturing, you can see this is 20, um, eight, 17 through 18. And you can go and see all of the citations that OSHA has written for that particular industry code. And this is a great leading indicator for you because you can go through and say, oh, I have this in my shop, I need to go and see. Rather than, oh yeah, I know that it's fall protection because fall protection is every 10 years, is every, every list in the top 10. So this is a great tool to get some leading indicators from. And remember, this is 2017 to 2018. Oh, and there were, hang on one sec. There were 4,000 citations written in that year. When we look at 19 through 20, there were only 25 citations written. Obviously, there were less inspections because of COVID, less travel, less workers, and all of that. But you can still see that even in the year where the citations were less and the inspections were less, you can still get a clue of those leading indicators. So this is a great website to use. And again, you know, this is from the Campbell Institute. And like they say, leading indicators have to be actionable, achievable, meaningful, transparent, easy to communicate. Easy to communicate is the huge one because if people don't understand, it's not going to get taken care of. And then valid, objective, subjective, useful. We want to make sure that they're of value. We want to make sure that we're not just creating work for creating work. And then timely. Like we said, that continual improvement, you have to make sure that things are done and that they're done when they said that they're supposed to be done. 
So what questions to ask? You know, sometimes when you're starting, it's a little hard to know where to start from. So again, back to those simple who, what, where, when, how, right? Go back to those simple questions, even when you're doing your audit planning. What do we need? Why do we need it? When do we need it? What SME do we need? And then what kind of documentation is the best for that type of audit? Is it electronic? Is it checklist? Is it PowerPoint? You know, what do we need? And asking these questions will have a significant impact to the success of the audit. And these same questions can be used when you're out in the field because they support each other. Like we spoke about, asking that question to make sure that the person understands that you want feedback and not just how's your day going. So, you know, these questions are really just go back to that simple Simple questions. Pretend you're a five-year-old. Why do I need this? When can I go? This is just a nice little graphic uh, just to kind of help you keep on, on track to make sure that you're moving along in the way that you need to go. So where to start? And where to start, like we said, can sometimes be a little daunting, and it shouldn't be, because you just need to get your team together and determine who do you need, what are you looking at, what supplies do you need, what's the criteria for the audit going to be? What are we going to look for? Are we going to, you know, typically when we look at, you know, suppliers and we audit them, because you don't audit every supplier you have. There's not enough time. Usually audit, you know, 10 or 15%. And typically we look at high risk, high spend, high volume. How much do they work for us? How much are they costing us? How risky is what they do? So you need to determine that same type of criteria for your audit. What do you want to know from that audit? And then again, have that audit training, have those kickoff meetings, make sure that all your audit team is on the same page and they understand what it is that you're expecting from them. And then the same thing again, determine what type of media you're going to use. Checklists, iPads, you know, phones, cameras, what are you going to use? And certainly, you know, it's kind of cool with like those Google glasses where you can go out and be doing an inspection in the field and your supervisor can see what you're seeing at the same time. There's so many technology, there's so much technology that's available to us right now. The biggest one though, although it's the last one on the list, it's certainly not the least, is a stop work policy with your program. During the audit phase, if you're out in the field and you find something that is immediately dangerous to life or health, you need to stop the audit immediately. The importance is to correct that finding and protect your worker, the environment, and your asset. And I always say worker, environment, and asset because the worker and the environment are most important to me. You can always get a new machine. You can always get a new tool. You can't always repair the environment, and you can't always repair an injury. But you do want to make sure that you do have a process in place for that. And again, your audit process, set it forth, do the assessments, review your findings, continual improvement. It is just as always, plan, do, check, act. But in the center, we want to have continuous improvement. We don't ever want to stop and not keep going with it. How are they managed? Predetermine your needs. Perform the audit. Data reviewed. Communicate results. Continual improvement. And these are just some nice graphics that, again, you can put as a reminder of the process flow. Your audit cycle, again, is just kind of a nice one that, again, kind of shows you what you want to do. This one here I really like because gap analysis, gap closure, we really do hope. When I'm auditing, we really do emphasize that this should not 
feel like it's punishment. It should not feel like it's work. It really is a gap analysis to better your processes, make yourself regulatory compliant, and obviously improve the safety for your workers. So we really do believe that these should be considered as an opportunity for a gap analysis. The benefit of the audit process, obviously, closing those gaps, greater focus on leading data, getting ahead of the problem, enhancing sustainability and corporate social responsibility. And that's really a big one because like we spoke about with the chemical cage and keeping lower amounts of chemicals on site, not to get away with the reporting requirements, but to actually make it a safer environment. And then again, being aware and having more adherence to the regulatory requirements. And one of the most important things is it engages workers at all levels, especially when you bring in your technicians and your machine workers to that audit process. It gives them a better understanding of why you're auditing and why it's important. And when you put someone in the process, it makes them a champion of the process. So it creates understanding and that understanding will flow out to other, to other people as well. So this is a really fun um, graphic because, like we say, do not become complacent. Things change. And, you know, one of the greatest quotes that I love is by Rear Admiral Grace Hopper. And she said, and she's famous for a lot of quotes, but one of them that she said was <clears throat> the most dangerous phrase in the language is we've always done it this way. And that is a terrifying phrase because just because you've always done it that way doesn't mean it's the safest way. So we want to take and uh, look at that and make sure that we have not become complacent. And thinking beyond, you know, and this again is those leading indicators, like in the slide before, old construction, new construction, old tunnels, we used to be concerned about a bend in the road, weather conditions coming in and out of the tunnel, sun in your eyes coming in and out of the tunnel. Now we have to stop and think about terrorist acts, bombs, broken down vehicles, you know, high speed moving vehicles, and a whole bunch of other things. So we need to look globally at what our global communities have experienced because if it can happen there, it can happen anywhere. So you need to take advantage of their lessons learned and make sure that you're thinking beyond that scope. For some folks that have sister facilities, it's great. If you don't, just search the internet. And then in closing, like I say, we just want to forever improve our audits and processes. And certainly, you know, the audit is a great way to make a safer workplace. Um, and like we say, safety is just good business. And then here are the resources. I hope you find them useful. And then, Barry, I am done, and it's back to you. Great. Thank you, Lori, and thank you, Kaiser. We appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us today. Um, I want to remind everyone of the evaluation survey that we're asking you to fill out. Um, should be appearing on your screen momentarily. Your feedback is really important to us because it does help us to improve our future webcasts. If you don't see the survey on your screen, please turn off your pop-up blocker, and you may also access the evaluation by clicking on the survey button, which is on the lower right portion of your screen. And I think we're getting close to the top of the hour, but we've got time for one question here. And uh, Kaiza, I'd like to ask you a question that came in from our audience. How can we begin to convince upper leadership that safety and sustainability audits are a worthwhile expense? Um, I think uh, I think it's important to talk about the business benefits uh, because uh, business leaders are interested in business benefits 
So uh, it, it, we cannot talk too much about the ideals or something like that, maybe not even international uh, conventions. But how can this be connected to our business? How can we do things more efficiently, better quality, um, more reliable? And also, what can we communicate out? Uh, because I think that's what people ask usually. So if we all do all of this, what can we then say? Can we talk about this and, and how it's benefiting in our marketing? So, so think about that. And, and of course, not promise too much, but also uh, be open and share what you are doing. I think people usually appreciate that. Great. Well, thank you for that, Kaiza. And thank you to everyone for joining us today. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all the unanswered questions today will be forwarded along to our speakers. Once again, I hope you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey to share your input with us. And that ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank our outstanding presenters, Lori Kanapi and Kaiza Matson, everyone from our sponsor at Aveta, and all of you who listened in today. Have a safe day, everyone.